Welcome to the Light Gray Art Lab podcast. I'm Lindsay Knoll. I'm Jenny Bookler. And I'm Chris Heine. And happy Halloween. Woohoo! Happy Halloween. <laughs> Chris doesn't wish you a happy Halloween because he's a curmudgeon. I was going to make a scary noise, but Jenny cut me off. Oh, sorry. You can go now. Ooh. That's not scary. It'll do. So today we actually going to finish part two of the England Diaries podcast. Uh, Tegan White and I went a couple weeks ago to England and had a massive adventure. And before we talk about that, we have a couple things coming up at the gallery that you must know about. So I can't believe it's almost November. I know. I don't know how this happened. I don't even know how it's I like no past. I, no I don't know how it's past like March. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, what if you if you joined us this past weekend, just to let you guys know what's been happening, uh, we just had the opening reception for the midnight exhibition. Thanks to everyone who came out to see the show. Uh, the exhibition had about eighty artists who have done all sorts of really amazing artwork. Um, all about their dreams, subconscious, some of the imagery and metaphors that appear in their sleep. Um, We've also invited people to, and continue to invite people to provide interpretations of their dreams. So over the weekend, we asked everybody to sign on and fill out a tiny little sheet that took some of the symbolism and the signs and the metaphors and translated them for everybody that was a participant in the show. And so over the next month or so, we're going to be posting all sorts of interesting content where you can see not only the piece of artwork that was created for the show, but also what people have to say about it. So if you haven't done that yet, it's going to be happening on social media. So if you are a Tumblr person, go take a look for it there. If you're an Instagram person, you can find it there and so on. So lots of really good stuff. People have a lot of really great insights too. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing them as they come up. So we also have a lot of things happening in November that you should probably keep in mind. We have some game nights. Yep, and the first game night is coming up this week. It's November 2nd, that's Wednesday again, and it's 9.30 to, nope, 6.30 to 9.30. And uh, the we, the theme is Grand Day Out. Ooh, what does that mean? Uh, it means uh, adventurous fun times like amusement parks, flying through the clouds in perilous balloon machines, all sorts of weird games that have fun themes like that i guess that sounds good yeah and then there's a couple more uh november 2nd november 16th and december 7th are the next three on the calendar so those are all on wednesdays 6 30 to 9 30 p.m that's great and we also have a couple tarot workshops and so do. after today's podcast you may want to join in so that you can learn a little bit more about tarot so we have one coming up on november 3rd it's the day right after chris's game night So if you want to learn about the suit of swords, which is all about making decisions, being a leader, having the qualities of a just and pure mind, all those things, if you want to come and learn about that, we're going to be doing that at 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. on November 3rd here at the gallery. And so information on that you can find Mm -hmm. on the Facebook page. Yep. And that event is free for students if you have your student ID and just a $5 drop-in class. So it's great. We have a couple more of those coming up, too. And again, all that stuff can be found on the Facebook page. But of course, we're going through the entire tarot piece by piece. Yes. (laughs) So we've got the suit of cups coming up. Uh, We've got the wands coming up. And then hopefully we're going to do some meetups after that. So all the dates for that are up on the Facebook page. You can keep an eye out for those. We also, in just about a week, are going to be launching the Make My Holiday signups. So what is that for people so that don't every know? every year we do a, it's a really easy sign up. We actually pair you with another artist from around the globe. 
Uh, so you'll be making something, shipping it to them, and also receiving a special package from your artist friend. Um, so the entire point of Make My Holiday is to make a new artist friend, make something really fun and special for someone, and get something for the new year. So it's all about new friendships, new artwork, and um, getting something really special. And thanks again for everybody that came to the Young Mystics workshops this weekend. We made a lot of really cool stuff, and we'll have some photos up on the blog too if you want to see the recaps of all the pendulums and the palm reading and the potions and everything else that we made that weekend too. So thanks again for everybody that showed up for that. So without further ado, we have part two of the England Diaries. We're going to talk a little bit about the UK Tarot Conference, number 13, Unlucky or lucky number. That was the number of conferences? Yeah, number 13. It is the death card, which was mm, one of the subjects. Interesting. I know, what I a perfect theme. I actually just read a book about this last night. Did you? Yes, I did. I, I did, actually, <laughs> as it happens to be. And they said that there are no scientific connections to the 13th, but they say lots of crazy things happen, and it's because people are more aware and they change their plans and they avoid things and change their personal habits. So then more accidents happen and more incidents and more things because of like a common, like a global superstition. Interesting. So it is interesting. That's crazy. Well, I actually might have some things to say on this week's podcast about that very thing. That's awesome. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Tegan White. On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the UK Tarot Conference, where the number 13 card, which is also the death card, was the focus. And so today I'm sitting with Tegan White. Hello. Would you like to tell people who you are and what you do? Uh, Yeah, I'm Tegan. I'm a freelance illustrator. I live here in Minneapolis, which is the same place that Light Green Art Lab is. Um, And yeah, I do children's books and gallery work. And a lot of it is death-themed. So it's appropriate that we're going to be talking a little bit bit about the death card today. It's true. We actually took a super adventure over to England a couple weeks ago where we traveled around the countryside. And if you've listened to last week's podcast, you might have heard some of our weird stories of stealing ashtrays and setting fire to stuff. (laughs) So (laughs) as we got into London, things got a little bit more studious. So we actually got to sit with some experts for the two days or so, and hear them talk about some themes that we are super interested in. So today we'll be talking a little bit about what we found out about astrology and the gods, about magic, about death as a subject, and then also some really crazy things that exist in London that we had no idea were there. And so lots of museum trips, lots of really great monuments and architecture, and a bunch of other crazy things that we've done. So... Okay, if we go back in time to the very first day that we went to London, we had sort of a plan of what we were going to do. So we walked in, we had a, a nice time driving around, and then started off our entire thing with some delightful karaoke. So <laughs> as most stories start with a good song, so we will now sing you one of them. Yeah, I'm not saying anything. Okay, Okay, so we won't sing you one of them, but we will tell you that in London, nobody has any punk songs except for Blink-182. To be fair, we only went to the one karaoke bar, so it could have just been a bad karaoke bar. It looked very fancy and very nice, and we expected just a plethora of songs to choose from, (laughs) but um, we just looked for all the punk rock ones and then cried. (laughs) 
Um, we had no punk rock songs. We had we had one punk rock song, and then also we went at six p.m. So it was just us. <laughs> it was just me and Lindsay in a private room at six p.m. It was quite an adventure. So it was nice because we had just traveled all the way from the southern coast, and so we were like, we got to do something fun. This is what we're gonna do, and it was fun, and it was amazing. But no punk rock songs for us. However, we did find lots and lots of stuff that piqued our interest the very next day. So in London, as opposed to what's happening here in in Minneapolis, things are hundreds and hundreds and older of years. How how old is London? One million years old? We don't even know how old England is. It's so old. It's so old. So the buildings there are just super fantastic. Like every time that you walk down the streets, you see architecture that... It's just mind-blowing. Everything is really ornate. Everything looks like it's been there for lifetimes upon lifetimes. And you know that on the streets, people have walked those streets that you know, authors and people that are um, influential uh, speakers and activists and just really interesting people. We happened to walk down a street called the Bloomsbury Mile, which is also where all the alchemists and the magicians lived. So on that very first day that we were there, we decided to do some of the creepy stuff that we've always wanted to know about London. So we actually took a couple trips to some places that are a little bit creepy, a little bit kind of interesting, and that have plenty of dead things that are existing in those spaces. So where was the first place that we went? The first place we went, I think, was the Hunterian Museum, which is in the School of Surgeons. Um, And basically, uh, it's this very, very old collection of um, different scientific and medical specimens um, that were used for, like, surgical knowledge and just general anatomical knowledge um, long before we had, like, you know, photographs and drawings and everything of some of that stuff. So back in the day, there was actually a man named John Hunter, who was a Scottish surgeon, and he started collecting bits and pieces of people, of animals, and of plants, and of all sorts of stuff. And he had all of these crazy collections of very strange bits and bobs from all over the place, from exotic animals or whatever else. And all of them are kind of strangely floating in embalming liquid. (laughs) Yeah, it's all those um, old-fashioned jars that you see um, of just like things suspended in liquid to be preserved. And it's amazing that they've lasted as long as they have, especially since uh, wasn't the museum destroyed during, was it World War II? Um, Which is incredible. So most of the collection was destroyed. And it was still an enormous museum that we just spent hours in just looking at all these different specimens. but uh, it's it's crazy to think how much was lost as well. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, one of the things I thought was incredible about that space is you walk in and there are glass shelves in sort of a horseshoe shape. Mm-hmm. And you can walk behind and in front of all of these different specimens and they have them categorized by type of illness or type of medicine or type of creature or a part of an inside of a creature. And so you kind of see these weird nondescript blobs. But as you read a little bit about them, you can learn learn a lot about what the stuff actually looks like. All of it, of course, has been bleached over time, so it's very ghostly in mm-hmm. there. Um, there's, I thought it was really creepy, um, a lot of the stuff, actually. Like, just to give you an idea, like, there were parts of humans that were, like, strange anomalies, like, uh, for example, like, the part of the body that has been, um, like, left over from an amputation, like a part of a bone after that, or um, 
like what things look like after the person has had syphilis. And then there were also animal remains that were everything from just like normal things like this is this like rat or whatever that, um, you know, it was pregnant when it was killed. And so you can see like the, the, the fetuses inside um, to things that were just these strange things like uh, like a calf with two heads. There was a skull of a calf with two heads um, and a lizard with two tails, you know, crazy stuff like that. So it was really kind of, um, I think that the focus of his collection was all of these weird anomalies that you wouldn't be able to see anywhere else. Um, and also strange experiments as well. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that really struck me was a chicken head that they had successfully grafted a human tooth onto the top of its head, not even its skull, like the top of its head. And it's like preserved head was in a jar, things like that, um, that, I mean, they were fascinating and they were beautiful in their own way, but they were also a little bit disturbing. Um, and I think it was like, uh, just being there for a couple hours, it was a very kind of like emotionally, like draining experience to see all of these different things and all think about all the different scary things that could happen to you as a person in terms of sickness and all the weird things that we've done to animals throughout time. It is really crazy. The whole second floor has a lot of different um, sort of insights into medicine from back in the day. So Mm -hmm. you see things that, um, what is that thing? What is that circular saw that they still do today to relieve blood pressure in your brain? Like oh. one of those, the corkscrew things that take a little... Yeah, like like, like trepanning mm-hmm. or whatever when they uh, drill a hole in your skull. I think it was originally for like a religious use or something ah. that they did that. Um, because like, and there's like hippie people that still do it today, like who think that it lets in some sort of, I don't know, angelic something. <laughs> oh no. Um, yeah, and there are also like, like amputation saws and gross stuff like that. There was a lot of crazy stuff, but it was it was really interesting to see it in all in one place because you almost get a timeline of how this stuff happened. Mm-hmm. There were also some really great pieces of artwork in there. Did you walk in that room? No, I don't think I saw that room. Way in the back, they've got a, a big collection of artwork. And so, of course, people were doing a bunch of different studies from all of these actual materials and remains and pieces and stuff like that. And so they had... Uh, sort of a anthropological portrait area where mm-hmm. they were like, oh, for people that can't ever travel, here's what people from all over the world look like. And so they had real people sit down for portraits. And then one of um, John Hunter's colleagues had gone and actually painted them really nicely. They're oh, really wow. nice paintings way in the back. And so it was funny just remembering, you know, people probably didn't travel that often and they Mm -hmm. probably never saw anybody outside of their country very often Mm -hmm. um but it is amazing too uh being from the what the start of this is in the 17 somethings you know 1750s or something like that till Mm -hmm. today like looking at all these specimens and thinking about how old it really is and what kind of history has happened between now and then and a lot of them really aren't that old and and like I think uh, I felt really lucky to be able to go there and actually see some of these things because when you think about it, we don't really collect specimens that way anymore. We don't need to. We have photographs. We have ways of documenting all of this stuff. And so these are really um, just like these uh, leftover artifacts of a time that really was not that long ago at all, but they're now kind of obsolete. Um, And so eventually these will, you know, be like disintegrate with time and people won't be able to really enjoy them anymore as like the kind of weird anomalies that they are. Um, so it's cool to live in a time when we have more technology 
to understand these things better, but still have access to looking at the way that people used to figure things out. It's incredible. So after we left, we took a train. No, we didn't. We took a bus. We wanted to sit on the top level of the double-decker buses <laughs> because that seemed like an iconic London thing to do. And it was. It was incredible. We went and we got on the bus for the very first time, ran up to the top and sat there and stared out the window. And it was amazing being on the top of that bus. I'm sure people just don't even care by now if they live there. But it was such a thrill. We liked it. It was great. And we took the bus all the way up to the Highgate Cemetery, where we spent a couple hours looking at some really amazing um, sort of tumbled, like, I don't know, uh, What's even the word that I'm looking for? The earth had sort of overtaken um, all of these these like mausoleums and gravesites and, and different things and sort of shuffled them about over the last however many years. Yeah, it was just the hugest, oldest cemetery. Um, and like there were just trees growing in between headstones and people would put like graves on top of graves on top of graves. So all of the headstones were kind of overlapping and falling apart on top of each other and vines just covering everything. Any place where you could actually read the name on a headstone, it was because someone had cleared away the vines actually. Um, so it was almost like a wild place. It was a crazy wild place. They had a main pathway that you could go down where all of these people that you probably might recognize some of their names were buried. And then off, just like a little bit off in a tiny dirt path, you would see just packed rows of humongous, ancient-looking tombstones. And the entire time I kept thinking to myself, like, where are these people's families? Like, if it's been abandoned or all this all this ivy is growing on it, it just seems really strange and really sad that nobody's ever come and cleared this stuff off of these tombstones. I mean, it was so overgrown. So... I guess we we spent a little bit looking at these and kind of contemplating. It was actually a very like, it was really serene. It was kind of like a reflective moment for me, I think. Um, But we ended up working our way back out of the gate just as the cemetery was closing. And we walked back past our favorite fence, which was covered in like seven inch long rotating spikes. (laughs) It was the best fence. Also the worst idea to climb that fence. It was it was basically an impaling fence that had rotating pointy things on yeah, it. Yeah, there were just like these like wheels around the the top of it and each wheel had a bunch of spikes on it. So if you were to like grab onto one of the spikes, then it would just, I don't know, go straight through your body. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they were serious about protecting cemeteries back then. They must be. That and you could probably get some serious tetanus. It was pretty <laughs> extreme. But we ended up taking the big red bus back to an area called the Bloomsbury Mile, where we ended up having a nice dinner at a place called the Plow, which was actually the place where Alistair Crowley, the world's wickedest magician from back in the 30s, ended up um, spending most of his time. And so he would sit there and have some drinks. And um, we ended up going there and joining a group of Uh, tarot readers and psychic people and uh, historians even for a night of learning a lot about what that area actually is. So the Bloomsbury Mile used to be the home to all the alchemists and the magicians and all the wicked people in the universe um, and is actually home to a place called Atlantis Bookshop. Mm -hmm. And so we, we listened to a woman named Geraldine Beskin tell us about uh, the origin of that street and how it's changed between then and now. So one thing that we found really interesting is she she talked about it through the eyes of Pamela Coleman Smith, which is actually 
the artist of the Rider Waite deck. So if you've ever seen it, it's the traditional one that everybody knows. It's in the yellow box, um, and it's got that classic imagery that people know about. And so we walked through Pamela Coleman Smith's eyes down the street, through the shops, and kind of got a taste of what that space was like back in the day. Yeah, it was really cool to kind of think about, um, because that's something that we were discussing the whole time that we were in London is like, you know, this place is so old, so much older than anywhere that we've ever been. And, um, you know, you're looking around and picturing what it would have been like decades ago and like thinking about who could have lived there. And then she actually knew a lot of this stuff because, um, she was what, like third or fourth generation, uh, owner of Atlantic or Atlantis bookstore. Um, and so it was like, passed down through her family as like the place that has all the, the, the magic focus books. Um, so she actually, you know, was there as a little girl and got to see some of these shops change into, you know, from whatever they used to be to what they are now and really knew all that history firsthand. It really was great to kind of see everything and get the context for it. And that's something you don't really get as a foreigner walking through the streets. Totally. So it was cool because the next day we ended up, um, kind of immersing ourselves in the entirety of the UK Tarot Conference, which was something we were really excited about going to. And so it was a two-day conference. Um, We were about to listen to people from all different kinds of backgrounds, obviously with a focus on tarot, but all sorts of things were talked about from numerology to spellcasting and a couple other really interesting subjects. So the very first thing that we got to do with all these topics was to sit down and learn how to to read our tea leaves, which was a hilarious effort <laughs> from us. We're like, how different it was can it amazing. be? <laughs> and we're like, first thing we do, drink this giant bowl of tea. And by giant bowl, I mean a bucket of tea. Yeah, we had to like empty out the tea bags into the cup um, so that the leaves would be loose inside of the tea. And then drink a whole bunch of it really quick. (laughs) Really, really quick is the key words here. (laughs) And we were like, ooh, this feels weird. But at least we have our tea uh, and our tea reading. So how you're supposed to do it, for anybody that's interested, is you have a white, preferably a white mug or a white teacup. Yeah, (laughs) and you empty your tea bag in it and you contemplate and you kind of, as you're sipping your tea, you focus on the tea and as you drink it, you eventually get down to just like the dregs at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so this like bunches of tea leaves. And so we had just like a, yeah, like a Lipton tea bag, which is pretty much particles, Mm -hmm. you know, but you can do it with just a loose leaf tea. And so as you get to the bottom, you have a tiny little bit of liquid, you swirl it around three times Mm -hmm. and then you flip the cup over preferably also onto a saucer and not just the floor. (laughs) (laughs) So we did an okay job with that. Then Tegan and I both lifted up our cups and I saw a giant goth boot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the, the the fun thing about it is that, uh, there's not a ton of like complicated process. Like, uh, what we told you is basically the only official steps that you need to take. Um, and then it's just a matter of like interpreting symbols the same way that you would like look at the shapes and clouds or whatever. So we were just searching in these T formations to see what we could see. And I think I had, I had an F, I had an ogre face, you had some cats. I had some cats, which is true. And I was like, yes, that's a thing I have in Your real life. Your face was scary. That was scary. And I want to ignore it, but I can't because it was in there. And then uh, I think I had a little like steeple building thing. It could have also been an arrow. It could have been an arrow and maybe a star I had. 
Yeah. Or something like that. And so, and what did you have? Um, well, I only had, Lindsay had like a bunch of tiny flakes of things. So we could find a lot of things like in the positive and negative shapes of it. And we were looking at like all the tiny little bits. I just had two giant clods <laughs> of tea leaf. Um, so I looked at one and I thought that it looked like Wisconsin, the, the shape of the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the woman teaching our class said that it looked like Australia to her. So either those things look similar or one of us doesn't know what I'm, Australia or Wisconsin looks yes, like. Yes, I am doubtful that they look the same. So I think yes. my other thing was a fish. That's pretty good. Those things yeah. can go together. So, so if anyone wants to let me know what my fortune is based on these things, we're not really sure. We're not really sure, but I feel like further contemplation might yield some interesting results. But that is how you do it. So. Yeah, I actually want to do it more. I want to go home and, you know. Try and read my tea leaves like every morning or something like that. I probably, if I made any changes, would probably drink my tea more slowly. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, but that was a really interesting exercise, as were a ton of the other new ones that we got to learn in the rest of the program. Yeah, we really got to um, listen to experts talk about the field that they know best and how it kind of overlaps with tarot. So there was someone who talked about astrology. There was, yeah, numerology. There was uh, tarot therapy. Um, these people who have all these different focuses and then brought it all around to relate to tarot and specifically the death card. Um, because every year the tarot conference chooses a different theme to focus on uh, for one of the one of the different cards. And since it's their 13th year, they're doing the death card, which is the 13th card. It is also one of those cards that I think people really don't look forward to seeing in their tarot readings. Yeah. It's probably one of the creepiest looking cards, especially the Rider Waite one is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's death upon his horse with his scythe and like all of the... The people that he's chopped down with it. Begging for their lives. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a, it is a very scary card, so I can see where that happens. But it was fun to kind of see different perspectives on it because it's definitely a card that has more than one meaning. And so we ended up um, doing a lot of practice readings and, again, taking in a lot of new information. I just love the perspective sometimes when you get people uh, talking to you about the things that they love. And these people were really knowledgeable about it. It was actually yeah. a great way to kind of get new information and sort of see things in a little bit different light. One thing that we always get asked, or at least what I get asked is why practice tarot? Why even use the cards? Like, what does it mean? What is it? And so how would you describe that, Tegan? Like, what is tarot for you? Yeah. Um, one, one really nice thing about being at the tarot conference is I feel like most of the people there kind of thought about reading in a similar way. Uh, I didn't hear too many people talking about it as sort of like this actual fortune telling practice or like as like anything magical or like external to yourself, like telling you how things are going to end up or, or anything like that. Um, it was more about uh, using it to work through your problems, which is how I've always used it in my own life. Um, I think that like whenever I'm dealing with something that I'm really confused about in my life, it's really nice to just kind of pull out the cards, uh, make a, a quiet space for myself to sit and reflect and kind of ask a question of the cards and interpret um, all the different cards that come up and see how that applies to my situation. Uh, so rather than using them to actually change your life or, or like uh, tell you what your life is going to turn out like, it's more changing your reality by changing your perception. So if I'm like 
thinking like, oh, why is this bad thing happening in my life or whatever? I might pull a card that suggests that like maybe I'm contributing to that being a problem or something like that so that um, it makes me realize that I have the power to kind of change these things or offers me a possibility that I might not have thought about on my own. So even if I pull like a, a card that I might have a negative reaction to normally, um, that's good like it, to not just avoid that reaction as um, something that like isn't true or whatever to think about how that might actually apply to my life and what I can do to change it or um, or like to maybe I, it's, it is something that I need to deal with. Yeah, I really like that as sort of an advice giving tool. I feel like it's a lot of those things where it's almost this third party telling you things like, hey, don't forget that this is a part of living and part of being a human. And yeah. so... And that's how I like to use any form of, like, even if it's not tarot, like, I'm also really interested in astrology and, like, I think any sort of um, thing where you're kind of seeking knowledge in that way, it's kind of seeking the knowledge inside of yourself, right? It's, like, I I like to incorporate some astrology into my day-to-day life, like, just keeping in mind what phase the moon is in or what sign the sun is in and things like that. But it's never, like feeling like it's an absolute thing that like this part of my life is going to turn out this way. It's like a suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, finding something new to focus on and using that as a way to kind of understand, uh, like a different perspective or, um, think about things that I wouldn't think about otherwise. And I love that. And I think you find a lot of people that practice tarot have this openness to yeah. listening to that and being like, okay, I will consider that today and I mm-hmm. will consider what that means for me or I will help somebody else consider what that means for them. Definitely. And so that's a really cool kind of way to look at it. So the funny thing is um, the entire conference being focused on the death card, we go in and we're like, all right, I think I understand what that means. Um, death is a big subject in your artwork. Um, it kind of works its way in to many of the things that, that you do. And I would love for you to give people an idea of like death is the concept of this entire conference. Like what do you think people usually think of when they think of death? Yeah. Uh, I think the, the regular interpretation that you hear a lot for death, um, is not that it means exactly death. Uh, so a lot of people, I think, especially if they read for the clients, um, or like for a living or whatever, um, they tend to, so you don't want to pull the death card and be like, oh, you're going to die or someone close to you is going to die. It's, it's a really scary card for people to get in a reading. And so people tend to downplay it sometimes by saying that, oh, it's all really about like transformation and rebirth and like moving past things. And that's true in a way because all of those things, transformation and change, they come after death. Um, they give you an opportunity to kind of start something new. But Death is also a real part of life. And all of tarot is sort of like a way of laying out in front of you like all the different parts of life. So there's a card for kind of every part of like a thing that you can experience in the world. And death is a thing that you can experience in different ways, whether that means, you know, physically dying or, you know, things coming to an end. And so one really nice thing about focusing on it for the conference was that you know, these are people who understand that, right, who didn't want to just shy away from, like, what it actually means. And they actually did want to talk about, like, no, like, sometimes death just means death. Um, and so that was really great because, I mean, just just for me and my work, that's something that I feel like I tried to do a lot is, you know, depict actual death, like, usually, you know, dead animals or whatever. But, like, I try to also incorporate um, something regenerative and um, the idea that something new comes after it um, by making it more beautiful, by incorporating, um, like plants and like new life coming from the death. 
But at the same time, it's like making people actually look at death and face that like, no, this is actually something that happens and that's okay. Um, and helping people look at it more directly in the face. And acknowledge it. Yeah. There are two sides to death, but you have to have the negative along with the positive. You don't get to just make everything positive all the time just to comfort people. That's, a, uh, that's I totally agree. I think every single card sort of has a neutral position mm-hmm. like that where you, you have both sides. Like you have the shadow side of it. You have the positive side of it. And you have to acknowledge both of them mm-hmm. because that's just like everything else, right? Like every single thing that a person lives through can be seen as either one, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how you're looking at it. And I feel like... Um, it is really apparent in your work that you have both of those things going for it. So one of the things that was also interesting about having the death card being a focus in the tarot conference was that we got to sit with a bunch of different experts and hear their thoughts uh, and very specific ones on what to use that card for. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times in the um, different conferences, people do practice sessions where they have you pull cards, they have you contemplate different things, they show you how to use it if you have a reading about this or that or whatever. One of the people that was there uh, actually talked about spell casting. And so I went into the tarot conference and not knowing exactly what that was supposed to mean. We just saw it on the kind of syllabus thing and we're really excited. We're like, we're going to cast spells with tarot somehow. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, what does that mean? How's it, how's this going to work? But there was a lady that came all the way from Sweden mm-hmm. to talk about what that is. And so when you cast spells, what that meant to her and what that meant to the, um, to the group that she belongs in. And it was really interesting as Tegan was talking about, there's sort of these moments where you take to contemplate different subjects by yourself. You have a space where you sort of clear it off, you clear your mind, you get out of like the crazy craziness of whatever else you were doing, and you sit down and think about what your intentions are. In this case, she was talking about using the death card as a way to release something. So it's actually about sitting down and contemplating using the death card to cast your own spell. And so what she had us do was she had us put down a card, something that we wanted to go away. So we actually looked through all of our cards and picked something and we said, we need to get rid of this thing. This is something I do not want anymore. I need to let it go. And we put it down. And then we took the death card and crossed it over the top of it. And we said, all right, I'm intentionally saying this is going away. And then she had us put another card right on top of the death card that said, what what is it that you want to bring in to your practice or your life or your existence instead? And so it was interesting because she had a very like super thick accent, you know, and her voice was very low. Very soothing. Very soothing. And she walked us just very slowly. And it was kind of a meditation of sorts. Yeah, she talked a lot at the beginning too about um, clearing the space Um, in which you would actually, you know, do this spell casting and um, making your surroundings very like, like clean so that you can really focus on everything. And it um, made it sound like a much more meditative experience um, than I would usually read tarot cards in. And I I think that that's really important, right? Like, if, if you're kind of pulling the cards about a subject that's really important to you, like making sure that you um, can really focus and really put your energy into it. And I think it, it was nice. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. nice just to sit there and think about these things. Cause every time I put down a card, I was like, what do I really want? Yeah. What do I really, really want? 
she also talked a little bit when she was going through the practice. She says, okay, well, in spellcasting, there are these different times of a month that you can be more intentional with this. And it's, of course, again, a symbolism of what else is happening in the world. And so she said, okay, well, a lot of times we think about what's going on with the cycles of the moon. So she actually talked about how the waxing and the waning moon and the full moon symbolize these different ways of thinking about how things come into your life, go away from your life, or the full moon to her and the way that she was talking about this was time for self-reflection, self-contemplation. And I was like, isn't that great? You know, there's actually a dedicated time where people sit down and they do this. This is the time I want things to go away. I'm going to do my meditations and spell casting during this time, Mm -hmm. you know, or um, just set aside the time or plan for it. I mean, if you can imagine waiting for a full moon, once a month or whatever to sit down and actually do something for yourself. Isn't yeah, that interesting? And, and something like that I think helps you just slow down and be more thoughtful and considerate about, you know, you're not just casting a spell about anything, you know, you, you have to wait until the right time to cast that spell. And that makes you, you know, be less impulsive about it and think about what's actually important to you. And I've always been super interested in um, the different phases of the moon. And uh, I think like historically, it corresponds to like the planting cycle and people used to use it or maybe still do um, to decide like when they plant seeds and when they harvest their crops. And so some of those phases also can kind of represent the same thing in like a creative cycle um, in terms of like now is the time that you are, you know, letting an idea germinate and now is the time that you are like actually bringing that to fruition and stuff like that. So um, I think a lot of that stuff is really, really nice to keep in mind in terms of just being thoughtful and planning out your time and not rushing things. And so what do you think about the idea of actually manifesting a change based on that spell that you've done like what do you think about that yeah that was my favorite thing about um kind of doing that exercise um with you know crossing it with the death card and everything is that going into it we didn't know if it was going to be like some kind of more like kind of wacky kind of like here's how we cast spells and like I, I don't know um like the the more cheesy representations that you would see in movies or whatever but it was really just about um deciding what you wanted to let go of saying goodbye to it and deciding what you want to invite into your life. So it's more um, creating your reality through your intentions. And that's my favorite part about Tarot in general. And so I was so glad that there was a speaker that really highlighted kind of that process and how to make it very intentional. And so do you think like the for- like formalizing that for oneself actually makes it more likely to happen? Do you think that people are like, maybe they just wouldn't normally? They're just like, well whatever, if things change, then stuff will happen to me. Oh, totally. And I think we all fall into that trap, right? Of like not being mindful of the fact that we can make changes in our life just by shifting our mindset. Um, Like a lot of the time we say like, oh yeah, I wish that this would happen. Or, you know, I I wish that I was more social or I wish that, um, you know, I spent more time with my family or, you know, all, all these different wishes that we have without acknowledging that like we have all the tools that we need to make those parts of our life different. Um, and you're not going to affect those changes or like do the, even just the small bits that are needed to make an overall change, unless you've really kind of solidified in your mind that that is what your desire is. And so just making that small kind of tweak to be like, this is what I want and really being mindful about it. Um, I think that that, I mean, do do you find that too? Like when, when you do a reading like that, um, 
moving forward after the reading, you kind of know what you want and you make different choices. And so it's more likely that the thing that you were doing the reading about will actually kind of come to fruition. In readings, in life, playing the what if game, Mm -hmm. visualizing what it could be if it was real, all that stuff. Yeah, there's all different ways to do it. And it doesn't have to be like this mystical stuff. You know, if you're not into tarot, if you're not into astrology, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's everything. It's just the taking um, ownership over your own life. Isn't that incredible? And it's so funny because I think when somebody sits there and tells you and it's like there are steps to doing this there are steps to being able to like manifest this thing in your life and and for some of us you kind of need to stop everything else in mm-hmm. order to focus mm-hmm. you know and I think that was really helpful because I I'm trying to you know in in normal times when you're trying to like just do it on the fly when you got five extra minutes what do I want to do you know with this random project I'm doing where do I want to be in five years I don't know and you're just kind of trying to react to stuff mm-hmm. actually setting aside the time was incredibly like therapeutic, you know? Yeah. It was really nice. So they talked a little bit about the idea, and this is actually kind of what the entire show up at the gallery is about right now is a subconscious and sort of like listening to oneself and Mm -hmm. listening to all the pieces, both the rational mind and your subconscious and how those things work together. Um, A couple people talked about, there's one guy in particular that talked a lot about a new study that came out where they said that the brain and the lymphatic system actually does affect, like the way you think about yourself actually affects how you do, you know? So things manifest because of either your self-confidence or the way that you think things are. Just, and Tegan and I had a bunch of great meandering, insane conversations about how, and this is my favorite thing to say in the world, it's like how you live or how you see the world is based on everything that's come before it. And so your reality is different than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that as he talked about this idea that your body and like the way that you think about yourself and what you can do and what you can't do is sort of tied to not only how you plan and process your steps and how you're going to exist, but also a lot of the stuff that works in the background of your mind. And so we were thinking about this, all these concepts, all these crazy concepts, because when you're in a room full of people that want to talk about the subconscious or like these different elements of how to make and manifest things in life or how to listen to, um, parts of your own mind or parts of whatever else. Um, it is kind of just a, a unique concept to stop and consider Mm -hmm. when you're sitting and you're thinking about just life. Like, do you often get to do that in general when you're thinking about future plans? Do you ever try and like think, like listen to yourself about what you really want or what you are? How do you even know? You know, I think like sometimes when you look at at different kinds of people, you're like, that person knows exactly what they want and they do exactly what they're doing, you know, because of this, this, and this. Like when you sit down and you actually reflect on your own practice or your own like life, do you actually take the time to sit and think about how to do that? Or I think it's really hard to, and and that's why I like things like tarot or, or even just, you know, it's comparable to just like have a long meandering conversation with someone, you know, which we did a lot while we were gone. Um, (laughs) I'm like, oops, I just, did this for like two hours. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, we're so busy all the time. Um, Lindsay is with the gallery and with all the different things that light gray does in her teaching. And I'm busy all the time with freelance and deadlines and all of that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the time you're, all you're doing is reacting to things and it really, um, it's, it's hard to set aside the time to really think through a problem. 
Um, and so that's one of the nice things about reading tarot cards or like any of this other stuff that we're talking about is kind of taking that time to slow down. And it's something that I do want to be um, more deliberate about. I think moving forward, um, the, is the conference was really in, yeah, the, 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 yeah, really? it was really inspiring wow. in terms of some of that stuff. And one thing that we also talked a little bit about is um, the idea that going a tr- going on a trip can sometimes have the same effect. You know, it's like you're you're taking a step away from your life and you're able to kind of like look at it all from a distance and feel like, okay, like these are the things that are actually important to me. And then since I am getting some time away, I can realize like the things that I've been doing that maybe don't make sense or that I can kind of let go of in the future. And then when you come back um, to your like actual day-to-day life, you can kind of be a little bit more intentional about some of your choices. Isn't that incredible? I Mm -hmm. always find every single time I come back and I'm like, things have changed. I don't know how this happened. You know? Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts about traveling. It's kind of like pressing the, the reset button. Um, I mean, I I guess it's similar to, um, creating these artificial, like, um, endings and beginnings for yourself, just like, uh, when you used to like be in school and you would have the end of a semester and then you could start the new semester kind of feeling refreshed and like being like, okay, like this is what I did before this. And now I know what I'm going to do next. Um, and then you kind of, once you don't have a school schedule anymore to kind of, uh, divide up your time, I mean, it's still just an artificial, um, divider, but, Uh, you kind of need to invent ways for yourself to continue doing the same thing. Otherwise, you kind of just uh, get a little bit stuck, I think. Well, I feel like that's a perfect way to put it, too, because it is like you are inventing a new way to do it. You are like consciously like whatever whatever the the new semester was, you're like, now's the time Mm -hmm. and you're doing it. There was actually one thing that I think um, you mentioned right before we did the podcast that also came up in the tarot conference, which was the transition from death to temperance. Yes. And so do you want to tell people sort of some of the, like, what is the transition? Where does it go after temperance? Like, or what, what are the three cards that were part of that equation? Yeah. So the, the, the very last, um, presentation that we had, um, was to take us out of our focus had been on the death card throughout the whole conference. And then, um, 14, the next year of the conference was going to be all about temperance. Um, so that's what it'll be next year. And so we had a little, um, a little talk and then more of like kind of an open kind of discussion about the temperance card and what that means. Um, and so we got a lot of really great insights that I hadn't thought about before with the temperance card. It's kind of a difficult one to pin down, right? Like it's like kind of like the strength card. It's kind of like, um, some of these other cards, uh, and it's hard to really define exactly what that means. Um, and one thing that the speaker called attention to was the fact that it's positioned, uh, after death and before the devil. So it's framed by kind of the two darkest cards in the major arcana. And um, and so she referred to it as kind of your guide through the underworld, um, which I thought was a really nice way to think about it. Um, and uh, some of the other um, things that we talked about in regards to temperance was the idea that you can have enough of something that you don't have to like, cause the, the, the devil is all about excess and like human greed and impulses and stuff like that. And so temperance coming before it is kind of the opposite of that. Um, and, and they kind of act as mirrors of each other. One is, um, you know, getting everything that you can greedily. And the other is deciding that like, I know all the things I could have, but I'm okay with having less and I'm okay with, um, keeping things simple and I think we talked a little bit too about the idea of that being not as popular of a virtue 
these days um, that everyone always wants more of everything and that we've really kind of like abandoned the idea of temperance. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because she brought up the fact that it's one of the four virtues that end up showing up in the major arcana. And it's, again, like she said, it's one of those things that we forget is a thing mm -hmm. where just having enough is okay. And -hmm. I think we talked about the idea of coming back from travel and sort of relooking at what you've got and what you're trying to do and like what is important. And that is a great card to follow up this just to kind of remind yourself like what is important? Like what is it? What are the couple things that I really want or really need? And is the rest of this even worth it? Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about it in relation to things like hard work, which are, I think, just in like illustration circles or art circles, um, something that we kind of put on a pedestal, right, that you have to be working crazy hard all the time. And I know that that's something that like, you know, I pride myself on and a lot of people pride themselves on like working all the time, being very busy, even like neglecting like sleep and health and stuff like that. It's like it's seen as like this kind of like uh, like honorable thing that, that you've been able to push yourself that hard. But like, is there a time when you don't need to, to do that when that's actually bad? Like, is it better to decide what, um, you're actually capable of and be more modest about your goals and decide what's actually important? Like, is, are, are there better things that come out of behaving that way? Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing I've been thinking about a lot since we got back and I've been trying to kind of move more slowly and be more thoughtful about what I'm doing and why. That's like a, it's a really hard thing. I think when you're in like the heat of stuff to change, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the temperance card is so interesting because it shows an angel stepping on one foot on land and one foot in water. And then they have two, two goblets or two chalices and they're pouring water back and forth. So it is about mixing things and like, kind of yeah tempering (laughs) like yeah it's about balance like I think the traditional meaning of the card that someone would say to just summarize and it's just balance Mm -hmm. um but like like what's good to note about that is that they just have these two jugs and they're pouring the water back and forth they're not getting more water from anywhere they're not pouring any of it out it's you have a finite amount of resources And that's true just like in your life in general. And you can only do so much with it. And so you're really going to have the best experience um, with your life or with your goals if you're finding out what the ideal amount is to kind of like exert in one direction or the other. That totally makes sense. I mean, and like they said, it's centered between the card of giving everything away, which is a Mm -hmm. death card, and then the card of excess and overindulgence, which is Mm -hmm. a devil card. And so again, the right amount, like the right things, the the stuff that's worth holding on to and juggling, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it is really funny. I'm glad you brought that up because it's, it's something I think about a lot where you're like, I'm tired. Is sleep necessary? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, well, what would I give up? And that's the hardest question. You know. Right. Yeah. Because if you take on everything all the time, then what comes out isn't going to be the best thing that you could do. So it's just really important to kind of step back and be realistic about what actually matters. I think. Yeah. Well, they said they said one last thing about this that I thought was really great about the idea of the death card, which was providing a space that you could then fill with something else. Yeah. And I think that's great because, again, if you're so busy and you have no time and no room and you're too like chalices of water like how will you ever fit anything else that's new 
or exciting in there if you don't pour some of it out and let something build, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't like hold in. everything at once. You have to put something down to pick up something else. Yeah, and I think that's great. We had a super insightful time there. Uh, we had one last teacher at the very end of the workshop that actually bridged two very different languages. I think people usually think of tarot and astrology as weird sisters somewhere, but oftentimes people don't blend the two. Yeah, it it was interesting because there was this woman who um, practices astrology and she was showing us uh, different ways of incorporating astrology into your tarot practice. Basically, uh, her her model was based on an older like historical model of like actually assigning each tarot card to um, to be linked with a astrological sign as well as uh, like a a planet. And so she kind of walked us through all of that and um, taught us really kind of just like that the the symbols for interpreting these things are the same in both systems, right? Like whether it's astrology or tarot, even if you don't have never like dabbled in astrology at all, once you just like learn the language that astrology uh, works within, um, you're able to kind of apply some of those same concepts in the same way that you would apply tarot concepts. And so it's kind of like the back and forth of that stuff. And so that's kind of some of what we were talking about earlier, right? Is that like, we, we, we don't think that these cards are actually determining the future, just like we don't necessarily think that the planets are determining our future. It's a language that you can learn that tells you things about the world. And once you learn that language, it can be any language. It can be um, you know any other form of divination that people have uh, formed throughout history. And once you know one language, it's not that hard to learn another. So it's interesting um, that not a lot of people at the tarot conference had a background in astrology. And some of them were kind of like weirdly dismissive about uh, her presentation. Um, Like it seemed like they were like, I'm an expert in tarot. I don't know anything about astrology, so it must not be valid or valuable. Or like, why would I do that? Yeah. Because I have a thing already. Yeah. And um, and she was really driving the point home that because you have already developed the skills to interpret all of this symbolism and like kind of learn how different symbols can represent different things in life. It's really not very hard at all to take that same kind of way of thinking about symbols and apply it to astrology because you've already learned it for tarot. And I know that that's, that's been really helpful for me because I was into astrology before I really studied tarot at all. And like a lot of the things cross over, like um, in terms of assigning elements to different things, like in astrology, each um, sign, each like your sun sign, like your birthday sign, um, has an element associated with it um, and it has like a planet associated with it. And there's all these um, things that you can pair to help you understand each subject. And it's the same with tarot cards, like uh, each suit has an element that's assigned to it. And um, we've been talking about things like each court card you can assign an element to. So you can just use all of these different ways. Like if you just know the very basic things, like what the elements represent or like what each planet represents, then you can use those to kind of decode things. And so that that's all that we're really doing when we're talking about astrology or talking about tarot. It's just like using a certain language to think about the world in a way that we maybe can't as fluidly through normal language, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I, again, it's like one of my favorite subjects ever because I need more reasons to think about the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like it's nice to get reminders from different places. Yeah. And I, and I think that sometimes these things can get really like insular and really, um, 
be hard for people who are outside of it and haven't like learned that language to, to really understand. They're like, what are you talking about with all of these symbols and all these yeah, specific or words? It's like, hard for people, I think, to, yeah, if, if you're like, what? that I have an idea of what this is supposed to be mm-hmm. and not if you're not deep into it or if you're not even a little bit into it, it's really difficult to be like, what is this? What are we looking at? What am mm-hmm. I supposed to be doing with this? You know, so it kind of has these uh, preconceived concepts of what what it actually is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, but it is such a such an interesting thing. It, definitely another language. Um, so we came away from this tarot conference feeling kind of like, I don't know, full of brain things. <laughs> Definite brain things. There's so many brain things <laughs> happening, and we're like, oh, there's things to think about forever. Our brains. Oh, our brains, why? And and so we ended up kind of like, we're like, okay, we have a little bit of time left here in London. What do we do? Like, what do we do with our last, like, minute One here? more day, right? Yeah. And we're like, okay, there's like a billion museums. There's like so much history. There's a bunch of stuff we could eat or look at or do or whatever. And... We went home, we, I don't even know what we did that day because I think my brain fell off. And then we ended up taking just our last day in London to appreciate some of the stuff that both T and I are super excited about, which was the Natural History Museum. And so we went all the way over there amongst all the children and all the people (laughs) in the rain, excited and busted through the doors of the Natural History Museum, which is old and ancient and incredible and filled with so many specimens. The architecture is ridiculous and it's just huge. There are so many different um, like exhibitions there. It was it was incredible. Like one of the things we did was we went directly over to all of like the animal specimens and we walked into a big room, this giant hallway with tons of cases of taxidermy birds and bird parts and pieces and and stuff. There is this one display case that I freaked out about and I wish that I could have it in my home or here in Minneapolis or something. But basically, it was this giant case in the middle of the room and you could walk around on all sides of it. And they had taken all of these specimens and they had basically taken apart birds so that you could see every single part of them. Um, So whether that meant like, taking a wing and cutting the feathers off so that you could see the way that the feathers actually connected underneath. Um, or like having a bunch of bird heads so that you could see, like compare and contrast all the different beak types. You know, same with like like feet, like all these different legs so you could see how the, the different feet worked and how the different like scaly bits looked on those. It was basically every part that you could possibly wonder about on a bird. It was all just like laid out for you to see. And that's something that I always like, I feel like even though I draw birds constantly, I never really fully understand how they work. They're so just like weird and they're covered by feathers and you can never quite understand everything. And so I look for stuff like that all the time, like a really comprehensive guide. And I've never found anything that, you know, showed me as much as that thing did. So I took like a ton of pictures and it was just really great. It was super cool. It was it was crazy. And I think um, we walked a little bit further and they had specimens of almost everything mm-hmm. um you know and you could tell they were old because now these days people make models instead of actually going out and finding the birds yeah and there's so many exotic ones too um that was really crazy because um in the united states i think we have a lot of these natural history museums but i've never seen um a museum with as many exotic species um and so you know those must have been brought over and you know taxidermied um like before probably before we had photos of some of these animals so it was the only way for people to even see what some of these uh, creatures from other places look like. 
And there, there was one case that was just insane. It probably had several hundred hummingbirds. Oh yeah, that was it. nuts. <laughs> it was crazy. And as a like a pattern lover, I walked up and I was like, "What?" And it they had taken all of these different hummingbirds, all these different types, and created a texture of them just in and out of the branches and they were just all in flight and it was insane all of these like teals and greens and it was probably like every type of hummingbird that was known to them at the time or something like that it was crazy I have never seen anything like that Mm -hmm. it was just coated in them it was like a swarm of hummingbirds Mm -hmm. just all in a big layout just a big pattern of them and of course you know you're taking photos and you're mad because the glass is reflecting. You're sitting there, you're like, oh, this you is really, crazy. Yeah, it was one of those things that you can't get an idea of it from a photo at all. It's just You have to see it in person. It was crazy. And then there was a couple other things that we were just in awe of. Um, we walked into another room where it was just tons and tons of fossils. All these giant, like a, an entire huge wall covered in like a big like sea creature fossil. I don't even know what some of those were. Some of them were like dinosaur type things, right? Yeah, they were all dinosaur a lot fish? of like, yeah, swimming ones. Swimming dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> but it was crazy. And Tegan read the plaque, of course, because that was probably the smart thing to do. Because I was like, wow, and I couldn't stop looking at them. And weren't they all found by one person? Um, I'm not sure if it was all of them, but I think the majority of that museum's fossil collection was discovered by this one woman in the late 1800s, which, I mean, I think it's fairly exceptional right for a woman at that time to be like in charge of important scientific discoveries so that was awesome um and uh she actually found just about all of them in the Lyme Regis area which is um an area we mentioned in the previous uh episode um that where we were looking for fossils and got to visit all the different fossil museums um in that coastal town uh, in the south of England and so she she just like explored that area and found all of this stuff before it was so picked over um and it's amazing to think about like I didn't even realize that like they knew dinosaurs existed in the late 1800s but here she was finding fossils of them then they were intense Um, just crazy humongous things and they were all flat that's the part that I loved Mm it's just flat sheets of like dark stone with these black fossils just Mm -hmm. in perfect condition just like wallpapering this massive hallway it was incredible yeah they're amazing yeah and I think the the last thing that we saw there before we headed out of London for the very last time was a room full of the museum's most unique specimens and that was really really amazing I'm so glad glad that we stopped in that room because it was I I guess the, the overall theme of that room was like the physical specimens that led to important scientific discoveries or reshaped the way that we understood the world around us. So for example, my favorite thing in there was there was this fossil of a bird dinosaur and it was the earliest fossil of the earliest known bird that has ever been discovered. There have only been, I think, 10 of these discovered ever like specimens of this bird. And this was the first one ever found. And it was also like the most complete one ever found in terms of um, the, the the brain. Um, they also said that it was um, the most expensive fossil in the entire museum, which is crazy wow. to think because it, was, it wasn't big. You know, it was maybe the size of like a seagull crow type size bird. Um, and so, and, you know, we had just seen like these where like, 
um, one fossil fills an entire like wall of a room or whatever. And this was more expensive than any of those because of how important it was. And so basically they're able to um, make a cast of the brain of this bird and use it based on like the size of the different quadrants of the brain to prove that it was could be technically classified as a bird because it had flight and so like it wasn't a reptile you know based on like the size of that part of the brain would prove that it was able to fly that's amazing um so i mean it's just so cool i mean i'm totally bird obsessed um, <laughs> and so to, to like see the first ever bird basically that we've ever found was just incredible that is so crazy. It is just like just a wonderful space. And there's plenty of other treasures in there, I'm sure, just all over the place. Just a wonderful place. They had an actual dodo skeleton, too. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. Also, uh, it's it's intense. The the whole thing. I, w- I could have spent days in there. Mm-hmm, so definitely. It was so sad because we were looking at our watches right around the time that we were in that room full of all the treasures. And we were like, oh, man, we have to leave now. And so we ended up. Um, booking it out of the the place, going back to the train station where we picked up our giant thing that we've been calling a baby. It is not a <laughs> real baby. It is it is a big duffel bag filled with all of our like camping supplies, our tent and our sleeping bags and all of that stuff that we had to then lug around with us because um, after we got to London, we did not have a rental car anymore and we just used transit to get around. So <laughs> it was humongous. It's like the size of two people smashed was, into a duffel bag. It was bigger than me and Lindsay combined it and we couldn't really so carry big. it between us. <laughs> it was too big. That's like, oh, stupid baby. So we ended up hauling it somehow back to the airport and we got on a plane and instead of going directly home for some reason, we went to Iceland instead. <laughs> We didn't necessarily choose this, but um, the way that our flight worked out is that we had a 17-hour layover in Iceland. Yep. And so we were like, well, we don't want to stay at the airport for 17 hours, so let's go explore in Iceland. (laughs) So we did, and we got in at 11.30 at night, got our rental car, drove to our like little tiny Airbnb place, which was in a garage. It was amazing. They had weird cheese in there that I promptly ate. That was like <laughs> half eaten already. I'm confused. They just they had a random refrigerator that was like filled with tiny bits of food, and they're like, "Please eat this." <laughs> and I was um, like, "Oh, so there's right. like a half a loaf of bread and like <laughs> some other stuff, some instant coffee." And we were, for whatever reason, really excited about that because I don't know, traveling and flying is stupid, but sometimes. Uh, you just like when you're traveling, you're like, I am hungry for no reason. Or I forgot to eat food now because I don't know what I'm doing. So finding weird remnants from somebody else's past was fine. And it so, was the best. It was the best. And so we ended up staying there for the night, finding a cat in the morning, letting it in. Shouldn't have done that, but it was awesome. It was the best cat. It was the best cat. We let a strange cat into our place. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> Sorry to anyone with allergies who wants to stay at this random no, Icelandic no, no. Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. We're like, mm, see your cat. And then we decided to take our car all the way out to the edge of this amazing cliff that overlooked all of these different like rock faces where the water kind of washed up and had made all these sea caves and it's funny because going in October is totally different than going in in the summer. And both Tegan and I have been there in the summertime. Yeah, we've both been to Iceland before. So, I mean, otherwise I would have probably been mad about how little time we had to explore. Um, but uh, I don't Yeah, it was really cool to just go and be like, 
we only have a couple of hours before we have to get back on our plane. And so what can we find that's within just like an hour drive of the airport? And it was amazing how much stuff you can find. The nice thing about Iceland is you can be anywhere and everything is beautiful around you. Everything is beautiful. Everything started to turn color. Is like all of the grasses were really long and they were starting to turn this golden color. And like, of course, you know, it's just so moody over there. And so everything is kind of like quiet and still and overcast. And um, we saw all these little tiny red bits of seaweed and like this bright, brilliant green all over the black Black Rock Beach. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. We climbed down a treacherous cliff to get to our little beach area. It was funny because we just pulled over the car because um, it was kind of a nice view. And it was one of the first views that we'd gotten after we left the airport. And then we realized that we were like right by the coast and that like maybe we could kind of climb down these cliff faces and get to this like totally deserted beach you know, that looked like probably no one had ever been there before. And it was amazing. And so Iceland's just filled with these weird pockets of things like that. And the only reason we even left was because we were afraid that we would get stranded with the tide coming in. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, don't want to die down here. Yeah. That's just fine. But just just an awesome adventure. And so we scurried back up the cliff and got in the car and we went near like a, a, a geothermally active area where all of like the the steam was coming up into the chilly air and it was making these great plumes of like white steam. Um, and of course surrounded by these browns and greens and, and just all this smelly sulfury stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Very stinky. Um, we had an old man tell us there that nobody, um, nobody pees there in the winter. <laughs> and we were like, hmm, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> But he told us. I'm just going to let that be a mystery statement and not explain to anyone what you're talking about. Yes. He was like, old man's like, let me tell you a fact. And we're like, "Mm." so (laughs) yes, we'll leave it at that. But we (laughs) were like, all right then. And then we ended up um, taking a stop off at uh, Lava Tube where um, we've taken a couple people in the past on the residency trips. It's just an incredible cavern, just like uh, sunlight filters through the top of it where it's sort of broken away. And then you get to this dark part that's basically just this underground cave where you have to wear headlamps and stuff if you want to go explore it. And I was really glad that we didn't have headlamps because I was kind of afraid of the lava tube. (laughs) So I was fine not going in it. That is just fine. It was really cool. And so we ended up getting back on the plane and heading back to Minneapolis. And now we're here um, with all these crazy memories of of an insane place, an insane trip. And so... um, just thank you again, Tegan, for being my weird adventure partner. Yeah, thank you for taking me on a weird adventure. I hope that many more weird adventures are to come. Yes, yes, as they will, I'm sure. And so if you were interested at all in some of the stuff we're talking about, we've had some really great talks about what's happening in the future with travel trips. And you may have seen online that there is a just a hint of what's to come over in England next year. And so if we're lucky, Tegan will help be uh, one of the guides over in the England trip for 2017. Mm-hmm. And so we'll keep you posted on when and what and how we may travel um, again. So thanks again for um, for all your insights and for being travel buddy. And yeah, here's to new adventures. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So Tegan, where can people find you if they want to take a look at like, I don't know if you'll post any photos or the artwork that you're making upon your return yeah, so um, my normal website is just teganwhite.com, T-E-A-G-A-N. Um, but uh, I definitely update my Instagram most often. That's just teganwh. 
Um, so you can follow me on there. And if I post photos, I will have links on Instagram and everything. So I do keep a photo blog that's separate. Um, you can find it through Tumblr. Um, so yeah, I'll probably post, post a couple of photo sets from the weird photos in England and Iceland and everything. That's fantastic. Thanks again for listening to part two of England Diaries with me and Tegan White. If you are keeping track of the blog or the events page, you will again notice there are many, many things happening. Also, some new calls for art coming up pretty quickly. So keep an eye out for any of the things that we're going to be doing in the next coming weeks. And of course, stop by and see the Midnight Exhibition here through what day? Uh, November 19th. So Chris, where can people find more information about all the stuff? Well, you can always check our website, likerareatlab.com, and that has the link to the blog, which is likerareatlab.com slash blog. You can also find us on Facebook. Give us a like there, and you'll be kept up to date with the upcoming exhibitions and events. You can find us on Twitter. We're at lightgrayartlab. You can find us on Tumblr. We're likegrayartgallery.tumblr.com. You can find us on Instagram. Don't forget about that. Uh, we are at like Gray Art Lab, and you can subscribe to this show on the iTunes Music Store or stream it directly from Stitcher Radio. Well, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk with you soon.